Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today, starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. T-Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, tune in for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Learn more at tquorum.com. Today's guest is Hasib Awan, CEO of Afani, a secure and private cell phone service. Welcome, Hasib. Uh, thank you, Laura, for having me on the show. You were one of the investigators in touch with the young people who hacked Twitter last week and gained control of prominent accounts, including those of Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Elon Musk, and others, as well as those of crypto companies like Coinbase and Binance. And when they had control of those accounts, they were soliciting Bitcoin from Twitter users. How did you get in touch with the hackers? So, Laura, I've been like up for time myself. So then after I was so pissed off that I was actually very, very angry that I said, I need to solve this problem. And so I went into those forms and I realized, you know, how they hack those accounts, how they get into account, how they, like pretty much all the ring of how they operate. So I spent, and, like, wait, almost, when you say that they had hacked your Twitter account? No, they hacked my SIM swap me four times, you know? Okay. And so, when you say SIM swapped, just describe that in case listeners uh, don't know. They, they probably like, do. But. So SIM swap is pretty much what happened is like someone will just take over a cell phone. So there's an underground market, like think about eBay. But like there's an underground market where people sell information. So they'll sell your name, your information, your social security number, your call logs, your life, even your life location or anything on you. If I say, hey, I need to find out what Laura Shin telephone number and they'll give me a telephone number. Uh, they will give me your call logs. They will give me and everything comes to telephone number because telephone number is very unique. And then if I say, hey, I need to take over the cell phone number because I need. So they will just transfer it to a SIM that I control. And I just need to pay them a few hundred dollars. And now your phone will not work anymore because I have the control of SIM card. So then I use that telephone number to get into your Gmail, Facebook, another account and Twitter. So if you go on Twitter and you do password reset, then likely it will send it to email or telephone number. If it's telephone number, you've got control of someone. So that's a very common technique that's deployed across US uh, for the longest time. So uh, in so- the case of the Twitter hack, Twitter said that their employees had been socially engineered and that's how these hackers gain control of the system. So are you saying that some Twitter employees had their accounts SIM swapped? Like how, how does the no. fact that you were SIM swapped by these people relate to the Twitter hack? Correct. So you wanted to ask me like, how did I get in touch with them? So I'm trying to understand. So I'm trying to tell you that 
uh, whenever SimSafs start going into this industry, into this forum, then trying to see how they operate. And through that, I set up my Ifani, so which we provide, and we made a career that probably that cannot be SimSafs. That's what we did. And after that, uh, once we start getting customer, we were actually getting a, a lot of attempts too. So we were getting attempts pretty much every week that someone tried to SimSafs our customer trying to like hack into our system. And when they failed, I got in contact because they will make you call, they will email you and then they will like, you know, message you and they will do all kinds of attacks. You know, they'll try to like pen, t- uh, like, you know, pen test, like, you know, DDoS, everything they did. And obviously in one of the cases, they reached out to me and I said, you know, like guys, like stop, like, you know, messing around here, right? I know what you're up to. And after, so I got in touch with him through Signal and after that, we just like, no, I won't say like, you know, become a friend, but I told them why you're doing this. Like, you know, you should not do this to multiple hackers. And they said, okay, you know, we don't have anything to do pretty much. So I said, okay, why don't you get a job? He said, you know, let's do a job. And then they start feeding me all the information to prove that, hey, they're legit. They know a lot of information. And that's how I was getting information from a lot of and, hackers about. And when did all this happen that you got in touch with them and had all uh, this incidents? It happened like four or five months ago. Okay. So and, they, yeah, they were, they were reaching out to me, not just for this hack, but like for other purposes too, right? Like, okay, you know, this account, like there's a lot of databases which get breached every day. So they wanted to see that, uh, Hey, if I'm interested in buying the database, they just wanted to work. So they pretty much passing out because it's not just about money. It's also about ego that they want to prove something that they're able to do something. So so my contacts were not hacking, but they were basically into this form. So they had access to that forums because uh, uh, I didn't want to access those forms. So they were passing me, hey, today this is for sale. Today this person is for sale. Tomorrow this person is for sale. So on the day of Twitter attack, I similarly got a message that Twitter will be fun today. And when I got this message, uh, I thought it would be like a just Twitter bots that are running like, you know, like Twitter scam, giveaway scams. And, but after a while I saw that Coinbase got attacked and, you know, um, uh, finance account taken over. And at that point of time, I thought that it's just maybe a third party API. Like, you know, you have services like, you know, where you schedule your tweets and everything. I thought that may be compromised and that's how they got. But after a while they say, no, we have everything. A screenshot. I tweeted out the screenshot and after that things just blew up. Wow. And so who are these people? Who, um, who were the people involved in the actual Twitter hack? So it's difficult to tell the identity. Like, frankly, I don't know. I can speculate, but obviously because of someone's security and privacy, I don't want to speculate. But I can tell you one thing. These are like just college kids or maybe like someone between uh, eight, maybe 18 to 21, 22. And they are video gamers. They met up forums and they just found this thing to be fascinating. For them, this is like a game. Like, you know, you go in a video game and you kill and you do stuff. So for them, it's like that. Uh, they probably are living in somewhere with their parents right now in a basement who does not even know anything. Uh, and they just do it for fun. Obviously money's there too, but mostly it's fun for them. It's just a thrill. And so originally um, the way you got in touch with them was they were targeting these different cell phone accounts. And what is their motivation in taking over the different cell phone accounts? So by cell phone account, you can actually, so when people take over a cell phone account, they can actually destroy you financially, emotionally, and reputationally. So by financially, I can say they can get into your account, your bank account, they can buy crypto through that. Uh, they can bypass a lot of levels of uh, security. So that financially they can do. Uh, obviously, they can get into Facebook and, and email too. And then they uh, download all the information uh, from your Facebook. And then they start blackmailing you that, hey, like, like when Laura, you have done this, like, you know, you have this client 
and uh, you have to pay me this. I'll, I'll, I'll put this information out there. And a lot of people will have to pay them the money because if they don't pay the money, uh, they lose their reputation, right? So, and then third part is they just become tortured. In my case, they were torturing me. Uh, when they used to take my account, they knew they cannot get into anything, but they wanted to torture me. It's just fun for them. Like people, some people are sick. And like, how did they pick you out of all the different people that they could torture? No, so they pick, like, it's not just me. Like every day, hundreds of people get SIMFAPT. So I'm just one of them. On average, every second, three Americans become victim of SIMFAPT, not SIMFAPT, but cyber crimes. So it's not like... But I had the impression that this was primarily targeting cryptocurrency people, but you were saying no, it's anybody. No, no I think 80% of people who are SIMFAPT are not cryptocurrency people. Oh, wow. Uh, and then in in the cases of those people, is it like personal vendettas that they're trying to... No, no, no. To- you, can, you can make more money by uh, hacking a lawyer's cell phone than anything else. You know, cryptocurrency is one thing, but lawyer is like one number one target lawyer and healthcare professionals, like doctor, medical doctors, and uh, and lawyers are the number one target of sim suppers. And what is the motivation for targeting lawyers and doctors? Money. money so doctors how, And are, how do they monetize that? Uh, yeah. So I tell you, like doctors are basically busy, less tech savvy. And are rich. It's very easy to find out anyone's doctor information. You can find out who's the best doctor in the city and you can sim up him. Um, and once you get into that account, you can transfer money between accounts. You can buy cryptocurrencies. Because people have been uh, going into the account, sim sapping, calling to the bank, making a wire transfer, and then just taking over all their accounts. So that's very common. Similarly, for, for doctors too, like clinics have a lot of money. If you go into a clinic, it's very easy to transfer even like 500,000 or a million dollar just over the phone because that's like a general transaction for them. Okay. So let's go back to the Twitter hack. There were some names that were identified of people who were involved. Uh, These names came up in the New York Times article that quoted you as a source. One was Kirk. Uh, There were some other people, LOL and ever so anxious. Who were these people and how did they know each other? So they don't, know each other like they're not best buddies they just hang out on rooms like you know chatting channels uh like like similarly like people on twitter they talked about these are private channels where people uh go if they want to have information so there's a dark web industry for finding information so if i want someone a social security number i just have to pay someone or get called out so these people trade those information uh and you ask about like uh like imagine you're a lawyer and you are fighting for my opponent case people can go to the websites and buy their call logs and see where they are who they're talking to so they can uh, make some intelligence on them. Uh, that's one thing. But other than that, these people are just, like I said, gamers. Like, you know, they will play like, you know, different video games. And Kirk is the guy who was basically a source. So the way industry works is there'll be escrow agents and they are in room for a long time. And they will say, obviously you want to, you want something and you don't trust a new guy. Cause the new guy who is basically the main culprit, uh, they keep on changing the identity because of multiple reasons. But the main guy remained the same. So imagine this kid ever so anxious, which had a decent reputation. So if you go to say, and you I want like a username of Laura, a dear Laura, Shane, and it's inactive. You may not trust Kirk. So you went to this middle guy and tell them, hey, can you hold the money for me? Because you have a good reputation. Because like eBay, these forums generally have reputation systems. You know? So when you uh, went to this guy, like, you know, ever so anxious, uh, he went to Kirk and Kirk, Pretended that he's a Twitter employee, but I don't think so he was a Twitter employee. And then he gave him the account, so he started building trust. So this guy was just a middleman. 
He was just brokering deals. You tell him what you want, he will just keep his cut and transfer the money when the deal is completed. That's all. And so, so Kirk was was saying that he was a Twitter employee, but yes. but as you said, you don't think that he was, and <laughs> he was essentially selling valuable Twitter accounts. And if people didn't trust Kirk, they would use ever so anxious as their middleman to get the different Twitter handles that they wanted. Is that what happened? That's, that's correct. Because Kirk only made an account on, I think, July of uh, 11th of July. So it was very recently that he actually came. So obviously you will not trust someone in, uh, that soon. Uh, yeah, I think it said July 7th in the New York Times article. I think okay. it's July 11th. Uh, okay. But all right. So, but ever so anxious had a longer reputation and, um, and that was who people were transacting with. And so then how did Bitcoin come into this? Uh, well, all the transactions on these forums happened through Bitcoin. So the way it started was they were selling the Twitter handles for Bitcoin. And then later, how did the scam change? So I personally think this is what I personally think that Kirk was in touch with a Twitter employee who was giving these accounts. Uh, for a few thousand dollars. And then either Kirk bribed him or Kirk social engineered him. Like, because like, hey, can I do a screenshot? So this is my, this is purely my speculation that you are working for so long, he won the trust and he may have said, hey, can I see the login for a bit? I want to see how it looks like or something or he made it something. So the guy just passed on, hey, just do it, but don't do anything crazy, you know? And, but Kirk just said, okay, man, I can just go on Binance and do it. Oh, I can also go on Coinbase. I can do it. I can also go on like, you know, all those accounts. And then he went crazy. That's what okay, I Okay. Okay. But you're just speculating. You don't have any proof of that or, or do you? No, like, what? no okay. I don't have any proof of that. I, the only proof I have is that Kirk probably do it. And Kirk is um, probably a guy called Voku, which is on dark web forum for a long time. So we speculate that he's someone that was in the industry for a while, but no, absolutely. I have no proof that uh, Kirk did it. But from all the action and everything, it all points to Kirk. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happened exactly uh, inside Twitter and, and with this scam. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with their MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Looking to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts? Welcome to T-Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week will feature presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Interested in speaking at T-Quorum? Submit your presentation ideas and the Tezos community will vote on who comes to the podium next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Back to my conversation with Haseeb Awan. So we don't know exactly how Kirk got into Twitter's internal systems. Um, however, once um, he or she did, then what did he do or, or she do with their power? So, assumedly it was Kirk. Then they went to, Bi I think they start with Binance and Coinbase. And um, the CEO of Binance 
and he made his account. He reset the. So first of all, what they did was they removed all the two FA on the account. Okay, and, which means when you log in, it asks you to do a second type of security, which is hopefully if you're in the crypto space, you have used something like Google Authenticator or a YubiKey, yeah. and you're not using text message based second factor authentication. You know Correct. where they send a code to your phone because otherwise, if he gets SIM swapped, then then it's like having oh, no. That's but, yeah. So, but anyway, they so they remove that and then keep the going. The second thing they added was a, a secondary email. You know, like a separate email. They replaced the email or they added a secondary email. So now I'll give you an example. Like you have my username Haseeb, so they removed two FA and they also removed chain my email, and then they uh, did a password reset. So the new email got the password request. So then they changed the password, got me the account, and uh, tweeted whatever they wanted. Wow! And what were they tweeting? So they were tweeting that you know, uh, you know about COVID nineteen. I believe like you know fund crypto because of COVID. We are like helping people. I don't remember the wording. Crypto for around, health. <laughs> yeah, crypto for health or something. And they said you know like send like bitcoins to the address, we'll return you back. And this is a very, very common scam in crypto. Uh, you can see on YouTube. Actually, they were so good that, frankly, sometimes I get like, you know, oh, my God, like they are able to make it like, like for a second, you think it's real, you know, and like, uh, but this happens pretty co- commonly and, and it's happening for almost like two, three years now. I don't know <laughs> if it really is the kind of thing where people will think it's real. I honestly... Uh, had created a question for you, which is who are the people who are savvy enough to own Bitcoin and know how to send it, but not savvy enough to spot what to me seems like an obvious scam? Yeah. Well, I actually uh, went on the internet and I tweeted out this thing, same thing. I said, like, who are those people who can have sophisticated enough to buy Bitcoin, but not like stupid to send Bitcoin. But I think greed takes over everything. Like, uh, I think when it's a greed, people think, okay, let's give it a chance, you know? It's like a lottery ticket. You know, uh, people may believe, but they think about what if this is true? And other than that, like if you like uh, Elon Musk happening, because there are actually philanthropy efforts on Twitter all the time where people are just donating money on Twitter, but they don't ask for anything. They say, hey, can you give me your, I have a friend Edwin who does this every day. So he'll give $20 to or $50 to every person every day. He'll say, hey, retweet this. I'll, I'll give you this money. So this happens right now. And obviously, um, as I said, it's all about greed. Like, you know, when greed comes in, people people forget everything. That's why, you know, we have so many Ponzi schemes. We have like so many scammers that happen that exist even today. Because if I come to you and I say, hey, Laura, I have an investment scheme and, you know, which is a very, very good. And, you know, here, here are all the materials, but it only gives you 5%. You may not listen to that. But if I say, hey, Laura, there's a chance to make 10x money tomorrow. You may like skip everything. You know, and you say, okay, man, I $1,000 will turn into $10,000 tomorrow. Okay, I'll take the risk. Something like that. Okay. I'm, hopefully, I'm sure my listeners are savvy enough to know if it sounds too good to be true. Um, yeah, I know, I know. But people apparently do that. Like, you know, I think uh, I have estimated that around like maybe, I think just in this Twitter giveaway scam, like I think people have lost like tens of millions of dollars. And uh, Well, n- not last week, but no, not last over week, time. In, over time, yeah. Yeah. And well, those people have been sending money. So there are enough fools, I guess. 
Yeah. And over, I mean, uh, for last week, the, the hackers did net about a little over 13 Bitcoin, which was about $120,000. Although Chainalysis said that about 20,000 of it seems to have come from a suspicious address that they actually think was controlled by the hackers to kind of make it look like this was legit and people were actually sending money. Um, but then also, by the way, they could have netted more. However, Coinbase said that it did prevent more than 1,000 customers from sending about $280,000 worth of Bitcoin to the Twitter hackers. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit also about just what happened in Twitter, which was in a Twitter blog post, uh, the hackers uh, targeted 130 accounts. For 45 of those, they reset the password and sent tweets from those accounts. For eight of them, they actually downloaded the account's data. And then for 36, they looked at the direct message inbox, including one elected official from the Netherlands. And so what do you think they could do with such information? I think it's the similar blackmailing that I've been talking to you about what happened with SimSopping. Like, think about it. If you have, um, first of all, these guys are fool and that's why they didn't, it wasn't like pre-planned. I don't believe it was just like, you know, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, it just happened. Uh, and they just like, it's like crazy guy who just got drunk and pretty much did everything. But I think if you have access to like anyone's social media, personal social media, like I have been, I've received anonymous direct messages and I, but I don't believe the, I think they are forged. I don't believe they are like real. So, but if imagine you have someone's social media hand and that may be confidential information that can be misused by states even. Like if you have Joe Biden personal direct messages, uh, you know, that's not confident. And even with the journalist or whistleblowers, you know, so I don't know whose information was, was accessed, but that's very, very, very concerning. And I believe this may happen on Facebook or other social media platforms as well, because they're susceptible to the same uh, attack factor. Yeah, I definitely think that this is um, one of those cases where it makes you want to just use encrypted social messaging apps. Um, such as like Signal or, or something, maybe WhatsApp. So let's just also you know talk a little bit about what we said before about how the hackers were able to remove two-factor authentication on these accounts. Uh, well, actually, what they did first was they changed the email address. No, first did- they removed the two FA and then they changed the email address. Oh, actually, but on um, there there was a there was an email. Sorry, there was a, a blog post by somebody who had the at six Twitter account. And they said that they believed that the hackers changed the email address, but that when that happened, it did not send a notification to the original email address. But I don't know if this person was surmising. Yeah, yeah. no. So uh, six has a very interesting history. So six belonged to a hacker. Uh, There's a community of hackers go with the 2600. That's like a code for hackers, right? Uh, Not a code, but that's like, you know, community for hackers. And he was a hacker who ended up like homeless and he was able to attack into, I think he was jailed too. And he went into multiple, he was homeless, but he was a hacker. And that's the community belonged to that. Six username is basically of, I believe his username. And, but yes, but I think the first 2FA was removed and then email was removed. But okay, it doesn't well, matter. Okay, yeah, the person both who of has control right. of it now thought it was the reverse, but either way, in it, it, like for any of us who are in the crypto space, who have been, keeping up with our security and using things like Google Authenticator or YubiKey and avoiding uh, text message-based 2FA or, or any kind of 2FA based on our phone number. 
what lesson can we take away from this? Like, is there any advice that you have for crypto people on how they can protect themselves if the services that we use have loopholes like this? But certainly I'll be biased and obviously, you know, uh, we'll selfishly promote like Ifani here, but that's what we do, right? We basically work, but a lot of people actually, I, I'm surprised at how many people uh, will compromise on security. Like I'll give you, I was talking to some customer yesterday and they do, uh, they said, how do you use password? They said Excel sheet, you know, and Excel sheet is probably the most, I can tell you, uh, I know we are making like uh, faces, but at the same time, Excel sheet is the most common used password manager for probably 98, 99% of the world. Uh, and so and what think, would you recommend instead? Use like a password manager, anything like, you know, just Google password manager, pretty much everything in the top five, six is good. You know, uh, don't cheap out on a family plan. Don't cheap out on like, you know, those like, okay, man, this company is selling me this thing. Go with a better company. Even if you don't go with Ifani, like, you know, that's fine. You know, if at least have a better company, like, you know, don't have a family plan because family plan makes you make you very vulnerable to, because now you're putting your own life on risk, but everyone who's in the family plan on risk, you know. And the third part is, uh, don't give out your telephone number and email address everywhere. You know, like don't go to like, you know, have a different email address if you want to. Um, and use like YubiKey and Google Authenticator, Authy or these apps. Like, you know, there's something simple. At one point of time, I had statistics that 95% of people who are on like major exchanges do not have a 2FA. I'm not oh, talking man. about SMS. I'm talking about like general 2FA. And I think 99% of those uh, were using SMS 2FA. So the people who even had it, they were using SMS 2FA. Every day I hear stories. I deal with at least two or three people who get SIM stuff every day. And they say, okay, man, we had SMS 2FA. And I can guarantee you that a lot of people listen to this podcast and they will not, they'll be lazy enough not to change it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> listeners, and, please don't, please don't be those people. <laughs> but, but I can tell you, like, I've stunned people and I said, man, do it. They said, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. Man, how much time did it take? Like five minutes, literally. It literally takes you to download an app, you know, and have a SMS to FA, you know, if you yeah. are very cautious, have a second phone number. But I can tell you that how many people make this mistake over and over and they, and, and it, you know, and in the end, uh, they lose and they still don't learn. That's the worst part they will still use the same SMS 2FA because they think it will not happen to them again. It happens again because if it happens to once, you become more, you know, you're at more risk of getting SIMS out again if they have found something. And sometimes they just do it for fun. And, and you know, like I, because obviously I'm very, very biased in a way that because I deal with those customers all the time and I've been a victim four times. I feel for the love, love of God. Like, you know, whatever you do, please, please, please set up a SMS, uh, like remove SMS and use it like app-based authenticator and please get off family plans. Man, these guys, these, I know you are saving like $10, $20 per month, but in the end, you know, if you, you cover or it's like insurance, you can live without insurance too, you know, but like, you know, the one day you need insurance, that's when you need it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you, Laura, for having me on the show. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexit allows you to achieve both of these goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also allows you to earn up to 8% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, U.S. Bank Regulator Grants Banks Authority to Custody Crypto. The Office of the Controller of the Currency, or OCC, published a letter that effectively allows national banks in the U.S. to provide cryptocurrency custody services. Acting Controller Brian Brooks, the former Chief Legal Officer of Coinbase, who took office less than two months ago, said, quote, This opinion clarifies that banks can continue satisfying their customers' needs for safeguarding their most valuable assets, which today, for tens of millions of Americans, includes cryptocurrency. The announcement marks a significant shift in the relationship between the U.S. banking sector and the crypto industry. As Caitlin Long, the founder and CEO of Avanti Bank & Trust, said in a tweet thread, Game on! The U.S. OCC's announcement that it's following Wyoming by allowing national banks to custody digital assets is great news for crypto. Long overdue, and it will hopefully help the U.S. regain ground it lost to other developed world countries by dilly-dallying for so long. The winners equal customers and crypto VCs. She says this will spur an M&A boom as U.S. banks acquire digital asset custodians because trust company charters and the bit license are now obsolete. Also, Coindesk reports that Avanti Bank, which Long is founding, will be opening its doors in October and will issue a new digital asset called Ovit that will likely use the Bitcoin blockchain. Next headline. Will Ethereum 2.0 be easier to attack than Ethereum 1.0? As Ethereum moves to the proof-of-stake incentive model with Ethereum 2.0, researchers at Consensus have published a detailed review of its network economics. In the author's assessment, Ethereum 2.0's proof-of-stake is highly complex relative to proof-of-work. The security of the network in Ethereum 2.0 is dependent upon three key variables. The amount of ETH staked, the price of ETH, and volatility. Attacks on Ethereum 2.0 are easier to scale than on Ethereum 1.0, and derivative attacks, in which attackers can make money by, for instance, shorting using any of the proliferating types of Ether derivatives, could become more common. Stefan Kulikin from Ether Capital put out a thesis which says that staked ETH is more like a digital bond with no counterparty risk. He writes, quote, Staked ETH gives you yield at the protocol level and not via a counterparty. Staked ETH is therefore an intrinsic yield instrument. For the first time ever, you can compound your ETH holdings organically without assuming any counterparty risk. In a separate tweet, Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin highlighted that, quote, transaction fee mining revenue is now nearing half as high as block reward revenue. This actually risks making Ethereum less secure. Fee market reform, for example, Ethereum Improvement Proposal E1559, fixes this, another reason why that EIP is important. Next headline. China's state-backed blockchain network integrates with six public chains. In a bid to dominate the blockchain infrastructure space globally, China has integrated its state-backed blockchain-based service network, or BSN, with six public chains that include Ethereum, Tezos, NEO, also, disclosure, Tezos is a sponsor of my shows, NEO, Nervos, EOS, and IrisNet. The partnership will allow developers on these blockchains to build dApps and run nodes using data storage and bandwidth from BSN's overseas data centers. 
The networks could benefit from BSN's cost-effective services and access to Chinese enterprise blockchain networks and financial data from China's UnionPay, which is usually difficult to obtain for entities outside the country. Elsewhere in Asia, South Korea has finalized its plan to charge a 20% tax on income generated from cryptocurrency transactions for people with an annual income of more than 2.5 million won or $2,000 from crypto trading. Next headline, Visa and MasterCard expand crypto efforts. In quite a turnabout from last year, when Visa and scads of other payment companies left the Libra Association, this week, the credit card giant published a new outlook on crypto and digital currency payment flows and stated that the company has been advancing and evolving its digital currency strategy for quite some time. Visa writes, quote, we believe that digital currencies have the potential to extend the value of digital payments to a greater number of people and places. As such, we want to help shape and support the role they play in the future of money. MasterCard also announced, quote, the expansion of its cryptocurrency program, making it simpler and faster for partners to bring secure, compliant payment cards to market. Next headline. With Bitcoin volatility hitting record lows, traders turn to DeFi. Folks from traditional finance usually scoff at Bitcoin's volatility. However, over the last few weeks, Bitcoin's price has been stuck within a tight range with its 60-day rolling volatility hitting a 15-month low last week. Traders have now turned to DeFi tokens while reducing exposure to large-cap cryptos such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. More than a billion dollars has been locked up in lending protocol Compound, fueled by yield farming. Traders are also capitalizing on the derivatives market and using options to generate yield in a less volatile market. FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried put things into perspective in a tweet thread where he analyzed the volume, noting that a lot of this activity is just traders locking up, lending, and trading stablecoins with each other. They're being incentivized to do so by governance tokens whose values go up as the total locked value in each protocol goes up. He said that this was similar to what was called trans mining or transaction fee mining, which was a fad two years ago. However, he says that this current version is the decentralized version. He asks whether this is all smoke and mirrors or a brilliant growth strategy, and then tells the story of two exchanges that did engage in trans mining, Fcoin and Bitmax. Both of them started off with high volumes from trans mining, but said that after they turned off their trans mining, Fcoin was left with nothing, whereas Bitmax, he says, quote, successfully combined the user base they got with an increasingly great product. He concludes, just because someone made a great marketing play doesn't mean there isn't substance. If you want to know more about yield farming, be sure to check out my recent Unchained podcast episode with Dan Elitzer, investor at IDEO Colab Ventures, and Will Price, data scientist at Flipside Crypto, where we discuss this craze. Next headline, understanding the rise of automated market makers. Dragonfly Capital's Haseeb Qureshi wrote a great analysis of the explosion in automated market makers, or AMMs, driven in part by the rise of Uniswap. He described an automated market maker as, quote, a primitive robotic market maker that is always willing to quote prices between two assets according to a simple pricing algorithm. For Uniswap, it prices the two assets so that the number of units it holds of each asset, when multiplied together, is always equal to a fixed constant. 
The way this works is that if the pool contains 50 apples and 50 bananas in one pool, then the constant between them will be 2,500. So if someone comes along and wants to buy one apple, the pool will only have 49 apples left. But since the constant has to remain at 2,500, this user will need to pay with 51.02 bananas. Uniswap descendants such as Curve and Balancer are a little bit different. Curve uses a mixture of constant products and constant sum, while Balancer, which has pools of more than just two tokens, is defined by a multi-dimensional surface. The post goes on to explain why constant function market makers will win the stablecoin trading market and why Uniswap has been a success, but why, why its dominance won't last forever. Qureshi's post dissects Uniswap closely, but for those who are interested in learning more about Balancer, which is a more complex constant function market maker, Placeholder Capital wrote up a blog post on its Balancer investment thesis. In it, they explain the possibilities with pools of more than two assets, which include things like having community-governed pools, surge pricing pools, whose fees rise when demand is high, or rollover pools that issue perpetual tokens from assets that typically expire, such as bonds. Next headline. Mempool manipulation resulted in the theft of $8 million in MakerDAO collateral on Black Thursday. A new report by Block Native revealed that manipulation of Ethereum's mempools enabled attackers to steal $8.3 million from MakerDAO users on Black Thursday, March 12th, which was the day when the price of Ether fell 43% within hours, which triggered a whole bunch of liquidations of the collateral held on the MakerDAO lending platform. Some savvy traders took advantage of the congestion on Ethereum to send in bids of $0 to liquidate some collateralized depositions on MakerDAO, thus walking away with ETH for free. I covered what happened here with Kyle Simani of Multicoin Capital on an episode of Unchained and also with Antoine Lecalve of Coinmetrics on Unconfirmed. However, going back to Block Native's research, the MakerDAO liquidations were an engineered event that took advantage of an issue involving evicted transactions, in which nodes to preserve system resources evict the transactions with the lowest fees. Block Native writes, quote, when a transaction is evicted, the node does not remember any details about the transaction, such as the sending address or the transaction nonce. Therefore, when a new transaction arrives with the next nonce, the node may detect a nonce gap and will be unable to process the new transaction. Impacted transactions are then placed in the unprocessable queued portion of the node's mempool. These transactions become stuck regardless of their associated transaction fees, that is, gas prices. BlockNative discovered the use of so-called hammer bots, which waited until, until their own transactions had been evicted from the mempool and then sent replacement transactions that didn't have higher gas fees but had the same or lower gas fees, thus clogging the network further. The post walks us through an example in which a zero-bid bot on MakerDAO submitted a zero-bid at 15, 59, and 50 seconds UTC with a gas price of 200 guay. At this point, there was a 10-minute countdown, countdown clock that was triggered, and during that time, a keeper bot could counterbid the transaction. There was a keeper bot that did counterbid within that window, however, it, and it did so with a gas price of 450 guay, which is two and a half times the gas price of the original bid. However, because of a nonce gap created by an earlier evicted bid, 
the bid by the keeper bot was blocked and someone walked off with some ETH that they got for nothing. Time for fun bits. If you've been on Twitter this week, you might be wondering, what is the deal with YFI? A new governance token called YFI is all the rage amongst yield farmers. YFI is the governance token for yearn.finance, which automatically moves traders' assets in and out of different liquidity pools in search of the best yields. Yearn's creator, Andre Cronier, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, writes in a blog post, in further efforts to give up this control, mostly because we are lazy and don't want to do it, we have released YFI, a completely valueless zero supply token. We reiterate, it has zero financial value. There is no pre-mine. There is no sale. You cannot buy it. No, it won't be on Uniswap. No, there won't be an auction. We don't have any of it. That hasn't stopped it from trading as high as $2,374. Curve founder Michael Ogorov told Coindesk, quote, since YFI had no investors and all tokens are going to liquidity providers, everyone became very crazy about it and it all exploded. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. To learn more at Haseeb and the Twitter hack, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.